You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Revelation chapter 3, let me read the passage and then unpack what the main idea is in these two churches. Revelation 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, What you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is about to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, I love movies where you find near the end that everything isn't exactly as they seem. Has anybody in this room not seen The Truman Show? Would you raise your hand? It's a movie with Jim Carrey. Okay, then I'm not going to spoil it. But when you go out and watch it, you will join the rest of us in realizing it's one of the greatest movies about things aren't as they seem. Now, when we think about real life, there are more ramifications, aren't there? Imagine in a negative context that you are growing up and you realize as you become an adult that the mom and dad that you have called mom and dad throughout your entire life are not your birth parents. That would significantly impact you. Maybe you find out as you work and you go in on Monday morning with the job that you've held for many, many years and that you rely on for a paycheck to provide for your family is actually bankrupt. 
Actually, that's like Johnny Raincloud. Let me, let me come up with a positive. A positive. Imagine that your great reclusive uncle is actually a brilliant international businessman. And when he dies, he leaves all of his inheritance to you. That's a positive, not what it seems. You know, in real life and in entertainment, we acknowledge that the impact of things not being exactly what they seem is significant. But in the church, eternity actually hangs in the balance. And what we see in these two churches is that things weren't how they seemed. And if you look at the big idea in your notes, through Christ, we see, understand, and verify who we truly are. That is the measure. Through Christ, we see, we understand, and verify who we as individuals and as a corporate church truly are. And we'll see a negative and a positive expression of that in these two churches. First question to ask yourself and ourselves as a church, how are you validating your claim? How are you validating the claim of your identity? It says in verse 1 that Jesus was writing to the angel of the church in Sardis. Now, the church of Sardis is a sweet, sweet Sardis, like your quarterback from your high school many, many years ago. Maybe you've experienced this, the quarterback from your high school that was, you know, so-so at your small school actually still acts when they come back to their 20th anniversary as though they're the stud they were those many years ago. And they come back and they talk about the glory days and they talk about how they, you know, won a few games in their high school career and that if they were, you know, just given the chance, they could have thrown the football over those mountain range. And unfortunately, they live in a van now and they look like Mr. Potato Head. I'm referring to Napoleon Dynamite if you've ever seen that. Sardis was that. They, they were great at one time. They were successful at one time. Their fortress was impossible defeat, or so they thought. We'll get to that in a few moments. And at some point in Asia, in the ancient world, they played a powerful political and military and economic role. But by this time, one of the Roman poets said that Sardis was more of a pest than it was a power in the Roman Empire. And often what happens in the church is that the church reflects the community rather than the community reflecting the church. What we see here is that Sardis, in this time, had a reputation of being powerful, but they were actually a pest, and the similar situation was going on in the church. Jesus says, I know your works, and you have the reputation of being alive. Now the reality is, is that both the community as well as the church would have said that Sardis church was alive. That it was thriving. That it had many, many people attending. The growth was significant. The budgets were meeting the needs of the cost. The volunteers, you had no holes in the needs for volunteers. You had talented people on stage. You had all the technology. Everything was clicking for the church in Sardis. 
The community would have said, hey, they're impacting the community. These are well-respected people, but there's more historical background that actually educates us on the problem that was going on in Sardis. You see, his story and Archaeology tell us that Sardis was actually an open community, welcoming to all different types of beliefs. In fact, one archaeological discovery shows that the the synagogue in Sardis could actually have seated a thousand people. That was significant. In the Roman Empire, for a religion like Judaism to have a synagogue that would have seated 1,000 people was significant. But I want to show you a picture on the screen of the central table in the middle of the synagogue. You see what's on it? It's an eagle. You see, the table in the middle of a synagogue would have been where they would have put the scroll that would have been read by the rabbi. This was a place of honor. It was a symbol that was actually important for worship. It was central to the synagogue because that's where the scriptures would be placed. That's where the scripture would be read. But on this particular table was the image of an eagle. Now, there's two reasons why that was significant. Number one, because Jews throughout history would very rarely, if ever, allow an image of an animal or a person to be made. But second of all, the eagle in the Roman Empire was symbolic with Rome. And so what you see in this picture is that Sardis welcomed religion as long as you adhered to them, and it was a hybrid And so what we realize is that as Jesus is evaluating the church in Sardis, what they say they are is actually a hybrid with the world. Jesus says you have a reputation of life. Now there's grammar here that's important, and I hope I don't complicate things, but I think this reminds us that the words of Scripture are important. See, right here it says that I know your reputation, that you are alive, but, do you see that word in the text? In the original language, this isn't the but that we have experienced in the previous letters. Remember, typically in the letter we see a commendation where Jesus says, you do this well, and then there's the English word but, and I explained to you in the original, it's a stark contrast. That's not what this word is. This word actually is better translated and. So here's why that's significant. What Jesus is saying is, you have the reputation of a life, and the reality is, you're dead. They're not completely dead. Verse 4 says, there are some who have not soiled their garments. There are some who are worthy. But what Jesus intends to do is shake the church in Sardis with the contrast. Look at what he says. He says, not only do you have the reputation and you are dead, but he says, you are about to die. So what Jesus is doing is what the New Testament and the scriptures often do. He's giving a warning by exaggeration. A warning by exaggeration is intended to produce the proper response in the people of God. By the way, that's an important background to Hebrews 6, one of the most challenging passages in all of scripture to interpret is that when there is a strong warning in the word of God, oftentimes it is an exaggeration so that the people of God respond appropriately. That's what Jesus is doing here in Sardis. 
You have this reputation in the community. You have this reputation in your church that things are going great. But I want you to know that if things don't change, you're on a trajectory of death. Let me ask you something. When you want people to think of something when your name is mentioned, what is it? Maybe in the workplace. What do you want people to think of when when they mention your name? Maybe that you're the first one there and the last one to leave. Maybe you want them to think that you're a hard worker or that you're productive or that as you come to the end of the year that your boss knows that you justly deserve a a raise. As a student, what, what do you want your classmates and the student body to think of? Do they want you want them to think, wow, they're popular, they're a good athlete. They don't have any, I don't have any problem finding a a seat in the cafeteria where people swarm to sit by me. Is that what you want people to think of when they hear your name at your school? Husbands, what do you want your wives to think of when she hears your name? Wives, what do you want your husbands to think when he hears your name? In the church, what do you want people in your small group to think? What do you want people that are seeing you when they walk through the doors or sit next to you here at the church? What do you want people to think of when they hear your name? What identity are you hoping that you have when they think of you? And the thing that we must remember is that it does not matter what others think ultimately or what you think of yourself. There's actually one who validates And that's what the text reveals, and we need to answer these two questions. Who is it that validates, and how does he validate? Verse 1 tells us the who. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. We talked about this in chapter 1. This is referring to the Holy Spirit who sees all and understands all, including our hearts and minds. And then this is also the one who has the seven stars. That means that he walks in and among the seven churches, both literally, historically, and all churches throughout the church period. This is the one who sees. This is the one who knows. And he saw Sardis was one thing in the church and another thing in the world. That's what it means here. This was his evaluation. And this gets into how does he evaluate Look at what he says about the the church in Sardis. He said, there are a few of you who actually have remained unsoiled. To be soiled, we've seen in the first few letters, means to be part of the world, to look like the world, to participate in the world, to not be holy. The word holy in the New Testament refers to being set apart, being unique, Meaning that when people see us as opposed to the rest of the world, the rest of humanity, they see us as unique. But what they see is not us. Look at the next phrase that it says in verse 4. It says, for they are what? What does it say in the text? They're worthy. We'll get to this in Revelation 4 and 5. Who is the one who is declared worthy? Jesus Christ himself. So what Jesus is saying is that by living your life unsoiled in your garments, by living holy, by living unique, what people will see is they will see Christ. And beloved, that's how you validate your claim is to what degree in the workplace, in the school, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the community, do people see when they see you, Christ? Christ. 
But that doesn't always work perfectly, does it? In fact, he assumes that that will be the case. He understands that that will be the case. And he says, wake up. You see it in the text? He says, this is who I see you as. This is the trajectory that you're on. This is the reality that I'm validating in your life. But you can actually fix it through Christ. And he begins by waking up. The word wake up means to be alert for the purpose of learning. That's very important. It doesn't just mean that as I look out on you right now, your eyes are open. That's a start. But the word wake up right now means that you're actually thinking about this. You're engaging with it. That maybe you're taking notes. Maybe you have your scripture open. But it's waking up for the purpose of learning. And that's what Jesus says is the beginning to ensuring that you're holy. And as you are learning and you realize that something is off, as you realize that you might be being stained by the word world, as you realize that you might be allowing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to seep into your life, he says, remember what you have and keep it. Do you see it in the text? Now, I think this is an important and interesting order. Because as you look at the rest of Scripture, when you think of the word repent, I would think that the word repent would sandwich, remember, and keep it. Do you see it? I mean, usually repent means that once I realize something, now I repent, and then I obey. But I think the order here is important. He says, remember the truth of God's word, keep it, and then repent. And I think the reason for that is a quote I'm going to ask the team to put up on the screen. And that is that when you think about repentance, true repentance is validated by patterns of obedience. I think that's the point of the order here. Is he saying to Sardis, look, if what I am saying convicts you, and if you remember from God's word that you are supposed to be holy, that you are supposed to be thinking like Christ and speaking like Christ and living like Christ, and you realize that something is off here, realize that it isn't just an emotional acknowledgement. Realize that if you have true repentance in your heart, it requires patterns of obedience to authenticate that. What's interesting is that he says that if you do not do this, I will come like a thief in the night. Remember the movie back in like the 70s or 80s? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that I will come when you do not expect it and you think everything is going great. And there's a nugget from Sardis history that will help us understand this. In the ancient world, typically what would happen is you would have a a city or a town that would either be in a valley or would be outside the walled area of the city. And whenever there was a potential danger for that city, then the populace would go into the walled city. 
And that's where they would be able to be defended. That's where the soldiers were. That's where the walls were. And so Sardis was the same. There was an Acropolis where there was a a walled city. And so whenever there was danger, the people would go to the walled city and never could they be defeated because not only was it a great wall with massive turrets, but on one particular side, there was a massive cliff that nobody could get up or so they thought. And what happened is the military did not defend that side where the cliff was. In fact, one king in particular was angry when it was suggested that he should post soldiers there because no one could come up that cliff. And yet twice throughout Sardis history, historians tell us, twice the impregnable city of Sardis was defeated because they left that cliff unguarded and twice, interestingly so, you'll have to Google it to see why, the enemy used that cliff to defeat Sardis. Why? Why do I share this? Because reputation, beloved, is our cliff. Here's what I mean by that. When it comes to reputation and what you are convinced and others are convinced you are, here's the quote. When you and others have been convinced of who you are, you tend to leave yourself unprotected. Isn't this true? both in a positive and a negative sense. I I saw this in school growing up. The the kids that were identified and became as their identity, the the nerds, they just thought, I can't change that. Actually, they're the ones that end up ruling the world, right? The people who thought they were popular, they just kind of go along with, with all the popularity and they don't cultivate character. They don't think about the little people. They don't think about the people that they are hurting by their, their stream of popularity. And, and that is the cliff. And that's where they're exposed. And so, beloved, how does Sardis respond and make sure that they don't leave themselves exposed? Make sure that they're not living in their past and getting too comfortable. Here's three ways I would encourage you to write this down. Number one, examine your life for holiness. Examine your life for Christ-likeness. And friend, you may ask, well, how do you do that? Like, do I have a ceremony every morning that I evaluate? No, you, you engage in the local church. That's what you do. You engage in a place like this where there is accountability, where we encourage each other to have transparency and vulnerability. We encourage you to think of others more highly than yourself. And in the context of the local church, listen, time and truth will go together and Christ's likeness will either be exposed or revealed that it's not there. That's why it's important to invest in a local church for the long term. You know, if you are the type of churchgoer where you come until things either are not popular or you don't like something that happened and then you move on to another church, there's not going to be an opportunity for time and truth to go hand in hand. And maybe you're desiring it to be that way. And maybe that reveals that you're like Sardis and you're dead even though you say you're alive. Friends, within the context of the local church, we have the opportunity to examine our lives for Christ-likeness, for holiness. Number two, where it doesn't exist Remember, keep, and repent. Isn't this the glory of the gospel, among other things? Is that when we realize we failed, the gospel swoops in to remind us, yes, you failed, but Christ succeeded. Therefore, we can continue in victory, in his victory. Amen? Oh, friend, when you realize that holiness does not exist, remember, keep, and repent. Number three, stay awake. Stay awake. 
Not just awake from sleep, but awake to learn. Friends, we are always learners. No matter how long we have been Christians, no matter how many times we've studied the word, no matter how many times you have heard this letter preached, we have an opportunity to learn. The word of God is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces us always and forever, no matter how many times we come to it. I was reading through Acts chapter 7. Am I reading through the Bible in a year? It's the story of Stephen, and I'm actually going to reflect this in the way that I impact Philadelphia, but I was reading through that, and I was discovering new truths and phrases that Stephen was using and seeing how he was actually weaving what appeared to be an elementary history of Israel to the religious experts, and he actually brought them to a place of conviction. Wow, it was fascinating. I've read that so many times. Friends, we stay awake to learn. And friends, I think if we're cultivating these three steps found in this text, then we will, like the Christians in Sardis, experience what Jesus says he promises. To the one who conquers, they will be clothed thus in white garments. He will never blot out our name from the book of life, which, by the way, that's not a literal book, I don't think. Because when you see how books are used throughout Jewish history, you realize they're imagery for validation. That's what it is. They're imagery for validation. And so to symbolically say that you are in the book of life means that Jesus affirms and validates you are his. And in fact, he goes on to say, I will confess or I will publicly validate his name before my father and before his angels. That's awesome. So friends, let's not just look at this as an application for a historical church. This is for us today as well. So here's the question from this passage, as you have ears, do you? Are you listening to what the Spirit says to the churches? How are you validating your claim? Number two, how are you celebrating your limitations? And don't worry, I don't have four points today. I told the green room when we were having our meeting before the service, I usually do four points. That's just, I'm a creature of habit. I told them I had two points, and they all looked up like, what, what's, what's wrong? Just two points today. Number two, how are you celebrating your limitations? So the church of Sardis appeared to be alive, and yet they were heading toward death. The church in Philadelphia, which, by the way, let me go back to Sardis. Archaeology has revealed in the third and fourth centuries uh, dating of crosses, Byzantine crosses that reflected a Christian presence in Sardis, which gives us indication that they, they made the corrections. Praise God. But Philadelphia is a, another story that not everything is as it seems. It says in verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was south of Sardis in Asia Minor. It was actually the newest of all of these cities. And the history of Philadelphia was an interesting one. The name I find most interesting. There were two brothers as the Roman Empire was getting started. Two brothers. The oldest one was king of this region of Asia Minor. And the younger brother was invited by the Roman Senate to Rome. And when he arrived in Rome, the Senate actually presented him an opportunity Rome was becoming more powerful, and Asia Minor's days were numbered. 
And the Senate tried to convince this younger brother to double-cross his older brother when he returned. The younger brother refused, and when he arrived back home and his brother heard what had happened, his brother said, because you have been faithful, because you have validated your love for me, I will name you Philadelphia, brotherly love. This was a military outpost. There were many Roman veterans that lived there. This was a place that experienced really unparalleled freedom for this region. You could live in Philadelphia both as a Christian, as a Jew, and as long as you didn't riot or in, in illicit riots, you could be welcomed and live at peace for the most part. But what Jesus says to them is what he often says in these churches, and that is he knows below the surface. Look verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. This is interesting because the next phrase is that he knows that they have but little power. This tells us a lot about this historical church. It was rather small. It was rather weak. It did not have the outward and even inward resources that Sardis had. And so Jesus is actually paying attention to Philadelphia. Why is that true? Look at who the one is that's writing, verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one. This is the God of the universe. This is the head of the church. He's, 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 he's writing to the small, seemingly limited church. We might expect him to say, listen, you are powerless. You are small and insignificant, so step up. Look at the example of all of these other powerful churches and start to make changes. What's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't condemn them for anything. He only affirms them. He actually affirms them in their insignificance. He actually affirms that even though they are little, they are actually powerful. And that's where the open and shut door will come in. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But the background of what was going on in Philadelphia is actually found in these three terms and phrases that Jesus uses here. Look at verse 7. He says that he has the key of David, which have drawn the reader back to Israel in the Old Testament. And then he says in verse 9, there is a synagogue of Satan and those who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's actually revealing the historical context so that we understand that things there were similar to Smyrna. In fact, the same phrases exist back in chapter 2 when Jesus was writing to Smyrna. So what was going on here? is that the Jews were stepping up and they were using their Judaism to actually condemn the Christians. So what it requires is for us to actually go back and remember what Judaism actually was. The Jews began formally back in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named Abram who had his name changed to Abraham. And it's interesting, as God reveals in Genesis 2 that the people were scattered from Babel and became all of these different nations, in chapter 12 we see that Jesus is actually, or that God is actually going to look at all of those nations of the world, and he's going to establish one for himself, one on whom to place his favor, 
to enter into covenant relationship. And it would be a special relationship with that one nation. And there were plenty other nations that were bigger. There were plenty other nations that were more powerful. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 says that God actually chose the least of all nations, the weakest of all nations. But God chose Abraham, and he chose the Jews to have a special covenant relationship with him. And there were ways that the outside world and Jews themselves could tell that you were a Jew. There was circumcision, there was keeping of the Sabbath, there was keeping of the laws, there was ceremonies and festivals and and, and requirements to go back to Jerusalem for several times during the year. And all of these activities would reveal to the world that you were an ethnic Jew and would reveal to each other that you were an ethnic Jew. But as time went on, there was a problem with Jews. And that is they began to rely on their outward ethnicity and not understand the whole point of God's choosing them. God always chose ethnic Israel to put on display what his people would look like when he dwelt with them and they with him. That's the point. It was always the point. And so the circumcision and the obeying of the Sabbath and the following of the laws were never supposed to identify them as Jews, but to identify them as faith. To identify their faith to identify their relationship with God, that he was dwelling with them and, he, and they were dwelling with him. That was always the point. And by the time of the New Testament, Paul and the authors of the New Testament revealed that not all ethnic Jews are true Jews. Isn't that an interesting point? In fact, you can write down Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. Paul says, not all who have descended from Israel, ethnic Israel, are actually the point of Israel. That's what Paul's saying. The point of Israel was never an ethnic people. It was always a faithful people. It was always evidence of God dwelling with them and they with him. And as it were, the Jews were billboards pointing to Christ, kind of like billboards, as I've said in the past, telling you about Disney World that starts miles and miles before Orlando. But by the time the one for whom all of redemptive history was focused came on the scene, the billboards were no longer serving their purpose, their old purpose. And so what had happened by the time this passage in Revelation was written is that the Jews found their identity in their synagogues. They found their identity in their ethnicity. And they thought they had the keys of David. Let me walk through why Jesus says in verse 7 that he had the key of David. You can write down Isaiah 22, 20 through 25. This is fascinating. There was a household manager in the kingdom of Hezekiah by the name of Eliakim. And it says in Isaiah 22 that Eliakim had the keys over his shoulder. They would usually be on a leather strap. They were large keys. They could often be a lot of keys. And in order to carry them effectively, you would put them over your shoulder. And Eliakim was the household manager of the kingdom of Hezekiah. And so if you wanted access to Hezekiah, if you wanted access to his treasures, if you wanted access to his palace and to his inner rooms, you had to go through Eliakim who had the keys. And Isaiah is saying that Eliakim is a pattern that one day will actually be fulfilled for access to the ultimate kingdom. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is the fulfillment of the patterns of Eliakim. 
And what Jesus is saying is, look, through my keys of David, I can actually open and shut the doors to the eternal kingdom. And so if you want to have the access to the eternal kingdom, you've got to actually come through me, Jesus Christ, not the synagogue, not the religion of Israel. And in fact, what he exposes here is he says, just like he said in Smyrna, this is the synagogue not of God, but of Satan. Why? Because this was a synagogue of religion. Friends, so oftentimes religion in our world today distracts us from relationship, doesn't it? In fact, I would argue that there are only, there's only two religions in the world. There's the religion of biblical Christianity, which relies on the completed work of Jesus Christ, which relies on the one who has the keys of David, the one who opens doors that no one can shut and shuts doors that no one can open. That is one religion, and then all other religions in the world are in that second category. There's there's something we can do as human beings. There's some ceremony. There's some work that somehow can appease the divine one or the gods. Biblical Christianity is different than all of those. It is a religion of relationship. And what is required of that relationship? Well, look at verse 8. You keep the word of God. You don't deny his name. Verse 10 You demonstrate patient endurance. Verse 8, you actually worship God. You value him above everything else. Verse 8, you obey him. Verse 10, you endure. Who is all of this centered on? Verse 7, Christ. That is required. And if that is the pattern of your life, it gives evidence that you have actually received the open door to the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus says to the Philippians He says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. Verse 12, conquer. And if you do, what will happen is the Jews will actually see that it is Jesus who loved the Christians and not the religious Jews. What it shows is that in their keeping of the word and their patient endurance that they have actually retained the faith. Now, there's some interesting phrases here that I'll quickly unpack. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word without patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, some have extracted from this That what Jesus is promising the church of Philadelphia and Christians of all time is that there will be a rapture before the great tribulation. Now let me just say that if that is your position, that has been my position for many, many, many years. But as I started to read the Bible and as I started to see that God very rarely has as a pattern to remove his people from suffering but actually bring them through tribulation, I started to question that position. And I think there's actually grammar here that further solidifies my position that there is not a rapture before the great tribulation. It says actually here that he will keep them from the trial. That word keep is an interesting one. It means to cause a state to continue. Would you write that down? It means to cause a state to continue. What is the state? The state is faith. The state is faithfulness. The state is authentic faith. And I think the grammar 
suggests here that what Jesus is saying is there will be a purpose for tribulation and trials in your life. On one hand, it will authenticate true believers. On the other hand, it will expose unfaithfulness. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, Philadelphians, if you will keep my word, if you will continue in the faith, if you will prove yourself worthy through the trials, then I will ensure that your authentic faith is validated, no matter how difficult the trials, no matter how great the tribulations. And I think as you look at the rest of Revelation, you will see that God throughout all time from the resurrection to his second kingdom is constantly turning up the heat of tribulation, isn't he? And he always has those purposes. Authenticate true believers. Authenticate unfaithfulness. And so I don't think what Jesus is saying here is I will remove Christians from tribulation. What he's saying is if you follow the patterns and the example of Philadelphia, I will bring it bring you through it and validate your faith. What what a powerful promise that is because tribulation can be rough. And as we study Revelation, we see it gets really, really rough. And and again, there will be, I I think at least where I am in chapter three, that just before Christ returns, it's gonna get really, really rough. And at a global level, the church is gonna be persecuted like no other time in the history of the world we have ever seen. But I got to tell you, there are pockets throughout the world, even right now, where the tribulations that we read about here in Revelation are taking place. People are being beheaded. People are being ostracized. And what God is promising them today is the same thing he promised Philadelphia then, and the same thing he'll promise whatever generation of the church is here on earth just before he comes, is that, listen, if you are authentically mine, if you are following after me, then when the great tribulations occur, I will actually bring you through them and make sure that your faith does not fail. What a valid and what a glorious promise. Verse 11 I believe further corroborates this. He says, I'm coming soon. And remember, when Jesus is saying this in the New Testament, he's wanting us to have a a, a sense of anticipation. He's not wanting us so much to be creating these timelines and charts so that we can know when it's going to happen. What he's wanting us to have is that sense of anticipation. He's wanting us to know this is a foregone conclusion that he is coming. And he set those wheels in motion by his life, death, and resurrection. And so this statement should cause us to be anticipating, to be on the ready, to be awake to verse 11, hold fast. No matter how hard the winds blow, no matter how driving the rain is, no matter how many fiery darts are hurled against us, that we hold fast. And if that is the pattern of our lives, no one will seize our crown. Do you see what the text says? And again, I don't think these are literal crowns. Revelation defaults to symbolism. When you look at history and you see what the purpose of a crown was, it was to validate your victory. What Jesus is saying here is, look, if you will hold fast during tribulation, it will validate that you are a follower of me, and it's authentic. No one can seize it. And then he says something that would have resonated with the Christians in Philadelphia, the one who conquers, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, pillars are usually what stand today in ancient Greece, right? You ever notice that? 
Very rarely is the entire structure or even the walls of the structure, but we do see the pillars. And the reason for that is because pillars were architecturally designed to withstand earthquakes, which Philadelphia was prone to. They were designed to withstand the tests of time. And what Jesus says here is, I will make you pillars. You will stand despite tribulation, despite the attacks of the religious Jews. And never shall you be thrust out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God that validates their claim, that validates their relationship. And then the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, you can write out to the side, Hebrews 12, 22. You can write out to the side, Revelation 21, 2. The New Jerusalem is describing the eternal state, the place that will actually fulfill what Adam and Eve failed the place that will fulfill where Noah and his family failed, the place that will fulfill where the the, the, the Jews failed, the instruction to make sure we are expanding throughout the corners of the earth the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The new Jerusalem will be that place. And it's interesting, Revelation 21 says that there is no physical temple in this new Jerusalem. Because the purpose or the billboard that the temple in Jerusalem intended to fulfill, the purpose or the billboard that the tabernacle intended to fulfill, the purpose or the billboard that the, that the, that the, the, the altars that the patriarchs build were intended to fill have been fulfilled in Christ. There is no more need for a physical temple. And that's what Jesus is saying here is that the ones who are faithful, the ones who have their faith authenticated, the ones who are truly my people, will dwell in the new Jerusalem because they are authentically mine. True citizenship, beloved, is found in an authentic relationship with Christ. And that is always through our limitations. As we close and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, there are four reminders of the gospel limitations we should celebrate in our lives. Number one, we were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, none of us came to the gospel of Jesus Christ because we were educated a certain way or in the right family. We all were dead in our trespasses. Number two, we need gifts to contribute to the body of Christ. And that's why I think it's important for us to remember the distinction between talents and skills and gifts. Talents and skills are something that God gives every image bearer when they are conceived in their mother's womb. Gifts only come when we are converted. Gifts have as their ultimate purpose to build up the body of Christ. So I cannot effectively build up the body of Jesus Christ unless I'm using the gifts that were given to me. Number three, God chooses the weak to confound the strong. Amen to that, doesn't he? None of us can be able to look at our team captain and say, aren't you lucky that I'm on your team? Number four, God's strength is perfected through our weakness. Beloved, the gospel is a message of limits and celebrating those limits. Because when we do, we do so through our centering and focus on Jesus Christ.